0: Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host Peter Taz and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei podcast down under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed listeners, it is with great pleasure and honor that I welcome you back to a compelling segment of the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today we embark on an extraordinary journey with the true martial master, Mr. Lee Wedlake. His expertise and profound contributions to the world of martial arts have earned him a reputation as the teacher's teacher. Mr. Wedlake's journey began in 1967 when he commenced his study of judo in Chicago, Illinois. Over the years, he delved into Kempo, showcasing a relentless dedication to his craft. Throughout the perseverance and unwavering commitment, Mr. Wedlake achieved remarkable milestones, including being granted an esteemed 10th degree black belt Senior Master in American Kempo. Beyond his mastery of martial arts, Mr. Wedlake's versatility shines through his accomplishments in the aviation community. As a certified flight instructor with an impressive portfolio, He exemplifies the principles of precision, safety and discipline that transcend into all facets of his life. Furthermore, Mr. Wedlake has enriched the Kempo community through his prolific writing, penning nine books of Kempo as well as contributing enlightening articles to various martial art magazines. His ability to impart knowledge in an accessible and insightful manner has made him a sought-after instructor worldwide. Notably, Mr. Wedlake's journey extends beyond martial arts and aviation. He has played a significant role to the renowned historical site of the Alamo. As a ranger and lead training officer, he embodies the values of discipline, dedication, enriching visitors' experiences with his vast knowledge. In our two-part interview, we will delve deep into Lee Wedlake's life, learning about his teaching philosophy, his passion for continuous learning, and profound impact he has made on countless individuals across the globe. Stay tuned as we unlock the wisdom and experiences of Master Lee Wedlake. A true embodiment of a martial arts master and beyond. This promises to be an enlightening and inspiring conversation you won't want to miss. Join us for the next part of our exclusive interview on the Mind Sensei podcast. Without further ado, let us welcome the extraordinary master, Lee Wedlake, to the Mind Sensei podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Mind Sense 8 podcast, Mr. Lee Wedlake. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I have you on, sir. Thanks for joining us again. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Let me start with, I'm going to dedicate this interview to my father, Greek boy, who affectionately nicknamed you America boy, and then you in return nicknamed him Greek boy. So <laughs> I might start with just telling the story on that because it's always a, a very good story to hear. Good for a laugh, yes. Good for a laugh, yes. Correct, and I think it took it very well. I think my wife took it very well too. Actually, she's a pretty good diplomat.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Last time we had you out, we had a tournament organised that you were the guest at as well, and we were sitting in my office having a having a chat. I'm asking you the thousand and one kempo questions. <laughs> my father was over with my mum, looking after the kids, I think, and we we could hear it from the office because the door was open and the yellow. Yeah. He yells out to us, "Hey, Jody, ask America boy if he'd like a Greek coffee." <laughs> so Jody comes in very diplomatically. I wonder how she was going to do it. She says, "Excuse me, Lee, uh, Pete's dad would like to know if you'd like a Greek coffee." <laughs> and then you, you yelled out, "Tell Greek boy, America boy would like one," <laughs> and 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 the two nicknames are born. So
2: <laughs> remember, Ryan. Um, Something at your table, he was across from me. I think I was talking to you or somebody else, but he was trying to get my attention. He, uh, he says, hey, American boy. <laughs> uh, he's probably the
1: only one who could get away with it. <laughs>
2: Glad to do this. Yeah,
1: I think it's important to capture our history and lineage. What I've probably found most importantly is capturing it directly from the person themselves. You can never embellish it or tell it the right way. And you never end up getting it hundred percent right. So I think coming from the individual, it's just, it's a hundred percent. There's no denying nothing. That's what I like about it. And I was very glad that I sort of recorded Segun's conversation by the campfire, which was his story pretty much. And I suppose there was a reason for that when I came to your camp. Yeah. Miss, you know. yeah. Tell me one thing. I know you started working as a volunteer at the Alamo. How did that
2: come about? It was interesting. I uh, had moved to uh, San Antonio, theoretically retire. My niece said, you know, you ought to go down and talk to the Alamo, you know, if they're looking for volunteers. I said, that is a heck of an idea. I went down there and had a short interview, and they said, we would love to have you. So I started as a volunteer, technical term as a docent, and they hired me part-time as what they call visitor services, or today they call it guest experience, and then I became a tour guide, and then I jumped over to the rangers.
1: And how's my friend over there going? Good? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I, uh, for the listeners, I took a photo at the Alamo when I came to the 2014 camp. Like most tourists, said to Mr. Woodley, do you know this bloke? And uh, it was one of the rangers at the Alamo. It turns out he did know him. So. <laughs> a small Well huh? <laughs> done.
2: <laughs> yeah. How did you start in your martial arts journey? Well, it's a story that I've written in my books. My mom put me in a judo class when I was a kid down at the uh, YMCA. Didn't really care for it, you know, as I've described in the past. Didn't have a very good instructor. I think he just had a class for kids just to check that box because I remember he just, he was always standing off on the side talking with his friends or what have you. I didn't care much for it, and then my mother thought I did, so she put me in a real judo school. And over there they said, oh no, not like that. And I found out that the judo didn't hurt because when I had been falling, the instructor number one had never bothered to correct us about keep a chin tucked in, I kept bashing my head. So I go home with headaches, and who who wants to do that? Well, the instructor at the second school fix that. I said, you know, this is fun. that got me started in the martial arts. I really owe my martial arts start to two women. One would be my mother and one would be Carol uh, Vulcan, who was my uh, judo instructor at that school. So was she your first official instructor? I would call her that, yes. She was at the ceremony in Tucson when I went to uh, 10th. And it was Carol that actually handed me my belt. So it was a nice full circle thing. And then about a year or so later, she'd passed away from cancer. How old was she at? your 10? And to be in her 80s. And was she still practicing or retired? Oh, no. No, she'd had both hips replaced uh, three times. No, she wasn't doing it. Okay.
1: And from judo, how did you progress towards kempo?
2: I did it for several years uh, through grade school and up into high school then we moved out of chicago to the suburbs and there were no judo schools i was at a party and i ran into some karate guys who turned out to be tracy's Kempo and we got to talking about things and they said come on down to the school so i went down to visit i was hooked and what school was that oh yeah it was a tracy's I want to call it a Tracy's offshoot. In my last book, I wrote about my different instructors. I had, you know, listed them by good instructor number one, good instructor number two, bad instructor number one, bad instructor number two. He was one of the bad instructors and I don't like to say his name.
1: So that was one of the schools you were at. And then from there progressed to another Kempo school or another instructor.
2: Well, I left that school and I connected with a real Parker Kempo instructor who was named Michael John Sanders. And Sanders was the real deal. He lived about 120 miles uh, west of Chicago, and I drove out there to his club, and he was teaching in a YMCA. And I watched what the guys were doing, and then he said, well, let me show you how this works. And I grabbed a hold of him, and he did something that was—it uh, was raking mace. I didn't know it was raking mace at the time. But he blitzed me, and the next thing you know, he had worked his way all the way around behind me. Bow, 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 bow. I was like, oh, my God, because uh, nobody had done that with us in the past, so I started to train with him. He really liked doing hard style karate as well, and the system, he was in the process of developing his own system that he called Bujin Kenpo, which is uh, he called the warrior's way of the fist. What he would do is he would take his beginners, and in the first couple of belt levels, he would teach them uh, shiruru karate. Mike uh, actually had black belts in seven different systems, and you typically don't want to believe something like that when somebody says it, but I saw all of his certificates. And after he passed away, I had possession of the certificates, and I eventually returned them to his his wife. So they wanted me to take this. Anyway, what Mike would do is teach them the rule, so they were learning Japanese kata. He was also a black belt in Taekwondo. These are not just first-degree black belts. He had ranks like for fourth and, and so on. Okay, So he taught them that, and he said he did that because it gave somebody a real appreciation for generating power and what the art style systems are known for. And then he would move them into the Kempo, which for him, it was, he did the pinion forms, and then you got up to two or three belt levels, and then you started doing a long form one and, and so on. That's a nice bridge uh, over to that. And then he gave him the Kempo self-defense. And he also had a black belt, Kajakimbo, which is where I learned some of that. And I picked up a form from him that I did very well with in competition, national and international competition. What was that form? So, for? uh, you, can't, you can't... It was called Hun Chao. It was named after uh, Professor Chao's father. Mike got killed in a motorcycle accident, and I was kind aimless for a while. I had a little karate school in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. I had gone to the 1977 internationals, 1978. Um, Mike passes away. I had met Ed Parker, contacted him, and I said, you know, sir, I hate to tell you, but one of your black belts had passed, and he said, well, Ed, that's a shame to hear. And I kept running across him tournaments in the United States, so, you know, he'd see me, I'd see him, and I was just, ah oh, Ed Parker. He was a judge, center judge on a lot of the black belt panels when I competed, and I would ask. I would always at the end of a competition, when I got finished with the division, I would always talk to the judges and say, what can I do better? What did you see? And and I got a lot of useful tips that helped me just improve a lot. And he told me some things. He says, okay, great. Well, then 1979, I'm at a tournament in uh, Ohio. And he says, I'd like to talk to you. I said, okay. Ed Parker wants to talk to me. When we we met later that day, he says, I'd like you to be my representative in in the Midwest. I was shocked. And then he says, when can you come to Pasadena to train? I said, you tell me when you want me there and I'll be there. And so I have to follow, follow,
1: follow you home.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And that path took me to the founder of the systems. I was just so fortunate. So fortunate. And
1: what rank did you start trying to get this
2: I was a second degree and my... I like to say I was a hotshot second degree because it was uh, winning a lot of trophies, fighting and forms and weapons and all that. And then I get out there. My first lesson with Ed Parker on the math at the Pasadena school was a private lesson. And he says, attention stance, worse. How do you establish the dimensions of a worse stance? And then we started to go through inward blocks. And I was like, I don't know any of this. I don't know about angles and methods of execution and so on. I was just taking all kinds of notes. So it was bottom up. I think it's the art of trying to learn
1: what you don't know, but you don't know what you don't know. You're only, you only listen to what your instructor right. tells you and what he passes on as gospel. And I had this conversation with someone the other day, and I said, when we came through, the information we had were there were five types of power in Kemper. Mm. You had embrace and spread. I look at that now and go, okay, you had linear, you had rusting, you had, they they weren't that great that I I don't wish to commit them to memory, but I do remember them when I was passed off. And I'm looking at them now going, well, wow. And and I think the one that did have right was was, um, gravitational marriage. I said, well, there's one out of (laughs) the five. The rest are three of them methods of execution and another one is the yeah, this could be construed as a method of execution too. Yeah, correct. But like you said, when you come through and your instructor tells you this is here's the gospel, you just take it in and don't question it. But then when you're the kind of person that goes out and asks other people questions, you soon figure out,
2: okay, all right, there's a, there's a lot more out there. That's pretty much what happened because, you know, I'm an 18-year-old brown belt or green belt or something i was talking to this instructor and i'd say what's this for and he said it's a grab and a punch i said well that's what it is it's what's it for and he didn't know i would ask him what this particular sequence would mean in a form and he says i think it's for this so he really didn't know and i remember saying to myself somebody has to know i learned a lot by going to tournaments but there wasn't much tempo in chicago there was no parker Kempo until i that's how I ran into Mike Sanders is that he had brought some guys out and we met at a tournament and he sees us, we see him. It's like, ah, who, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so that was, it was just a coincidence. It's great. So once you hooked up with Mr.
1: Parker, you started driving and taking private lessons with him and you had a school as well. Is that right?
2: I had a school, I was not driving because I was 2,000 miles away. I was in Chicago, he was in Southern California, so I used to fly there. And I would stay for a week at a time. So I would train at the Pasadena school, I would take private lessons at Mr. Parker's house. One day he said, I want you to get the material from Frank Trejo and then show me what he taught you. He says, that way I can double check you both. So it was a combination of things. It led to some interesting discussions that Frank and I would have about the techniques. And uh, he and I were discussing a technique out on the mat at the Pasadena School one day. And Frank was like, it goes like this. And, well, now he's told me that it's like this we're beating the crap out of each other. Mr. Parker walks in and goes, what are you doing? And so we both say, well, well." no, no. He said, no, this is what I mean. This is what I intend with this technique. And that was one of his keys. It was like he had an idea behind each technique. So it wasn't supposed to be just a list of stuff. He said, here's the, what I call the spirit of the technique. Now, I was fortunate to have that experience as well. I could see how it had been modified over time and then what he was thinking. And of course, he was always tweaking the techniques as well. I found that people really love patterns, of course, especially in Kemper. Like it goes like this. And when they changed snapping twig to add a second shuffle, he added a shuffling with the thrusting chop and then the shuffle at the end. But putting that first shuffle in there, people lost their minds. Oh, my God, it's like this now. What the hell are you doing? It's, like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know. Lucky I know I was there too. Lucky they didn't come through the way I
1: came through. We did five versions of Kempo. At one stage, techniques used to change weekly. There'd be a lot of people losing their mind.
2: Well, I did the same thing. I learned the system three different ways. Well, once I got with Mr. Parker and I met so many great practitioners and instructors in that I you know, connected with Huck and Joe Palanzo and I you know uh, worked with Tom Kelly and, of course, there was Seagong uh, and... Paul Dye and I met John Sepulveda and you know and the list goes on. I was really fortunate. So how did
1: you get to meet Sigour? All the people I talked to, I find that his web travels very far with a lot of
2: people. You know, it's it's funny because I mean it was at the International's. I can't tell you exactly which year, but I was about ten feet away when I heard him speaking to a female black belt. I don't remember who she was, and he said, I'm going to take my first bow for you as a fifth-degree black belt, so apparently he'd just been promoted. That was when I first really knew who he was, and it wouldn't be until many years later when I actually got time to, to talk with him like you did, but it was at Graham's camp. And I remember thinking, I was like, man, I really missed out from all those previous years of getting to, to know him. Of course I knew of him from many sources. Huck was one of them because he was part of that school there with Tom Kelly and Gary Swan.
1: It was a pretty cool camp that camp you invited us to, so thanks very much for that. That made, that was that was awesome. So you know, I was probably like you were with Mr. Parker, right?
2: <laughs> mm.
1: You know, here's this little bloke from Australia. Not little, but you can just say young fella from Australia. We were training at the camp and I think I thought, oh, I'm not coming all the way to Texas and I'm not going to move like, pardon my friend, I'm not going to move like shit. I'm going to train. I'm If I'm representing Australia, I want to move okay. I think I was doing, was it Mr. White's class? I think. may yeah, maybe Mr. White's class. Google so was sitting in the corner and I think he was sitting with someone and he, I could hear him, you know, because I can pick the accents. When you're Australian, you can pick the accents and hear the voices on the side. And had a corner my I caught him elbowing um, the person next to him going, look at the Aussie, look at the Aussie. So you give me the, you know, you got the little nod. Yeah. That's cool. All right. This is cool. This is cool. You know? <laughs> so I was, I was happy that I got the nod from Segun, you know, it was like, yeah, this guy's all right. You know, <laughs> to all the Australians, yes, I was representing you well. So that was good. You know, happy with it. Yeah. 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 That was a highlight, you know, <laughs> capturing the, the campfire conversation. That was, that was even better. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity. Let's, uh, let's continue <laughs> on. And I thought, yeah, you'd, you'd enjoy that story because it was your camp. And so that was meeting Sig Gould. Tell us how do you start your school. What, how did that whole starting the school concept come from? Or how did you get going? Or...
2: I was teaching part-time at that first school that I was at. And I was, had made it up to Brown. And I was told that in that school, making Brown Belt was the kiss of death. Because everybody that had gotten up to Brown close to Black either got fired or they quit. Apparently, it was because the instructor felt that once you uh, got up close to black, that you were be- you would be a threat. To learn later, he did that when he was coming up. That's how he got his black belt was by threatening his teacher that he would move down the street and open a school and take his students. <laughs> so he transferred that to us. I was a brown belt. I was teaching. Uh, I had gotten up to brown belt in the school. I've been teaching since I was an orange belt because they used to trickle down principal there when they instructed, the orange belts taught the white belts and purples taught the oranges. But I went off and I was teaching in what up there they called park districts, recreation centers and so on. And I found that I was getting to be a really good instructor. I taught in a half dozen places and I had students and they were like, we want more, we want more. And then I, well, how about if we build you a home? And I decided to go rent a space. That's how I got the, the school started. I borrowed $1,500 from my aunt. And she originally said, well, you know, we'll go in as partners. She was a business woman, And one day she said, you don't want a partner. I'll just loan you the 1500 Pay me back, which I did. And I looked back and said, this was 1976. $1,500 to start a business. That's nothing. You can't start a karate school for under fifty or $60,000 anymore between all the expenses. You know, yeah. the, the business has changed so much.
1: So, with the uh, cost of inflation, the cost of living, though, if you took 50000 and ran it backwards, $1,500 yeah. probably a lot of money back then, though, right? Because wages would have been... Well, yeah, it was. Know, yeah,
2: yeah. But uh, that's how I got the first school started. And did that continue on? Like, what was the school called? What was your school name? I had a another brown belt. By then I had made black with uh, Sanders. So I had this brown belt and we were talking and we were good friends. And one day we were probably drinking too much beer and we were coming up with names for the school and we said, let's call it the Dragon Wind. Uh And uh, (laughs) that came from, this is the time, the era of the Kung Fu series with David Carradine. David Carradine. And so it was the dragon rides the wind. And, and all of so like, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. So we call it the dragon wind and that stuck until I moved from Chicago, 1991. I moved down to, I moved to New Hampshire, up to New England for about three months. and I moved down to Florida. Three months later, I had another school and I took Mr. Parker's advice. He had been, he had passed by then, but he had told me years ago when I asked him, it's like, why is it called Ed Parker? Why is it called a studio? he said a studio is a place of creativity and so because a lot of people are like a karate academy or karate school or something but he called it uh, ed parker's karate studio place of creativity says but you got to put your name on it so when i moved to florida it was uh lee wedlegs then
1: that must be where dragon wind evolved into australia right uh right it's
2: because jack nylon had asked if he could use the name yeah but at least he asked permission i had one or two other people that just took it okay so they they like the name and it's out there but at least somebody asked permission some people did the right thing anyway (laughs) you know you know i've written a lot of books it's always interesting to see who's how they pirate stuff i've had i don't know how many copyright infringements that i've had to chase down and all that and I and I've seen it with Ed Parker's stuff too. I saw guys that took his paperwork, the uh, like the belt requirement sheets, and you could see at the bottom they said that they had a copyright Ed Parker's. People would just take that off and put their name on, and and so on. So it's like yeah, well you know, it's just did, the way it goes. Talking about those sort of stories of
1: copyright and plagiarism, blatant plagiarism, I suppose is what you'll call it. We did have an individual I won't name. It, he said i've written the second degree extension and i went that that's fantastic now now i don't have to do any of it that's great that you've done it you've stepped up to the plate that's awesome he sent it to me i looked at it went oh this is this professionally done like you know i'm into computers and design and this is like this is this has been done by professional this is typeset. it's got justification spacing punctuation Pagination, it is perfect. It's like you paid for a publisher to set this up. You sure you did it five times? Yep. I did it. Yep. Yep. I'm not looking even down to the color scheme is like, yeah, this is, this is pretty ready. Like anyway. Yep. No, no, no. I did it. I did it. Fantastic. Yeah. swore black and blue, he did it anyway. Had another gentleman ring me and say, uh, Hey Pete, give me your address. I'm going to send you something. You know, I, I, I bought it off the internet and I'll send it to you. It was the Lampkin and Lampkin extensions up to 5th Black. So he printed it out, bound it for me, sent it to me. Fantastic. Thanks, great, much Opened it up, went to the second degree section just by browsing through it and went. Um, copyright Lampkin and Lampkin off the bottom. Just, that was rubbed off. Put logo up the top. His name down the bottom changed absolutely because there's purple extensions, right? They had purple and in there and beautiful color scheme. It was identical. Like in terms of copyright infringement, it's an open and shut case. And then so then I got it and I rang him up and said, uh, just looking at this manual I've got, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. lamp and, lamp and extensions, does that mean anything to you? And I uh, <laughs> He was he's a, a bit yeah. of, he a bit of an individual is known to do that sort of stuff and I'm like oh okay. Well karma's karma's coming, you know. Yeah. That's that's the whole idea. You can only do it for so long, like you'll get found out. Stuff gets around. Oh yeah. You know, people know, you know, that's why we have this podcast too, right? It's like straight from the horse's mouth. There's no denying anything. Here is the
2: reality of it. Yeah, exactly like you said. It's perfect example. Yeah. I've had that happen. Some of my magazine articles have been reprinted with somebody else's name on it. Same thing, word for word. One of the guys uh, came in, he he had a commercial uh, like arts magazine from South America, and it was my article with somebody else's pictures, but it was word for word. They lifted it right out of Inside Kung Fu magazine and published it down there. <laughs> Uh, funny guys. You mean if the goal is yeah. to get the information out there, it's like, yeah, okay. But I mean, geez, it's, make attributions. That's yeah, one yeah. thing that I don't, and that really that bothers me. I mean, if somebody taught me something or whatever, I like to say, I got this from this instructor, I got it from that person. I don't try to make it look like I know everything. But you give credit where credit is due. Yeah, correct.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. Even like, Coming to the camp and doing all the seminars with all the instructors and yourself and everything. If I'm teaching it and I've picked up something, say, from yourself, I will say, have a look at this. This is what I picked up from
2: Mr. Wedlake at the camp.
1: It all comes out in the wash, right? You can't hide anything.
2: We got it from Ed Parker. We give it to you. Everybody runs it through their own filter, of course, but there's certain things. Well, you know, this is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. the, the value of your podcast is this is what he told me. Right. Because she stories, and then I've read stuff on Facebook, and it's just like, where did that come from?
1: <laughs> like the one I sent you the other day. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all. Awesome. Yeah. I opened up my journey and read through your whole bio in a bit of preparation. <laughs> I noticed you got, you had your first tournament when you were uh, an orange belt. Can you tell us about that experience?
2: It was a little interschool tournament because the owner of the studio I was at had three schools. So he had this little interschool tournament to go in there, and that was just... I remember I think I won a Forms Trophy or something. I still have the trophy. You know, it's marked like 1972 or something like that. But I really don't remember much else about it. That
1: reminds me, we'll have to... Um... We'll have to go over the tournament in Australia here that you helped the fish out.
2: <laughs> <Red> Lake. <laughs> I told him not to make any <laughs> face contact. I'll mention that later.
1: Because you won't keep a straight face for the rest of the interview, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, it's That's gold. That's gold. <laughs>
2: you still remember it? <laughs> yeah, it's on, it's on video. No it's face a, contact. Yeah. You're
1: lucky we got it on video. <laughs> uh, oh. Was that your first entry into tournaments that at Orange? That was your first taste of yep. and going to tournaments? But, so did you get a taste for it after that, or did you
2: have to continue on? Uh, well... No, we started, you know, some of us at some of us at the school, we were purple, blue, and green belts, would start to go out to some tournaments. Because the school that we were going to, there was there was nobody there that could coach us about this is how you play that game, or this is how I mean, they're just the instructor was, was bad. The iteration of the school before that had a couple of instructors or at least one that had that experience he had come from california under that a school owner and had been able to teach the guys like this is how you you do this because they were he was a fighter we didn't have that by the time i got there that guy was gone so you went to tournaments because you could you could learn stuff this is where you saw like oh you could do that particular kicking combination or this is how you score the points or what have you learned how to play the game but being a lot of, being Kempo guys, back then, you showed up at a tournament in a black gee it was kind of like, ooh, you're a rebel. Kempo people were known for what uh, we call the old grab and sock. It was just grab and punch. So the control was probably not as good as it should have been. I remember several of us going to a tournament. I had called ahead and I said, is this an open tournament? They said, yes. I so, said, so we're Kempo people. We want to come up and compete. They said, sure, come on down. And so we go up there, and when we show up, it's a Taekwondo tournament, and uh, it's Taekwondo rules, so there's no grabbing, no sweeping, no groin kicking, no punching to the head, that sort of thing. They told us, we give you a trophy to go alone. <laughs> uh, no, we came to fight. We competed in forms, and, we, and when it came down to the fighting, it was just... It was just to see how fast we could get disqualified, which we did, and then we went home. Where it comes <laughs> from? <laughs> so after that, started to go out on the open circuit, and I won my first tournament in on an open circuit as a brown belt. Then I was hooked.
1: I, I do know that you started competing the in internationals and you were uh, nationally ranked. It right? was well.
2: I was uh, competing all over the United States. I did the big uh, tournaments and uh, fought uh, the US Open when it was in St. Petersburg, Florida, the Battle of Atlanta, in Atlanta, Georgia, the Diamond Nationals in Minnesota, the USKA Grand Nationals in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the AKA Nationals in Chicago, uh, and, the, and the Internationals in Long Beach, and the Fort Worth Pro-Am, which was down in Texas, was Roy Kervin's tournament. Lots of regional tournaments, and then sometimes I would fly out to LA. I was out there to uh, take my lessons, and I would compete out there. When Steve Fisher, who was a Mike Stone protege, would throw a tournament, or Mr. Parker had a couple of tournaments he called the Universals. It was funny because I came back from California with a trophy uh, from the Universals, and my student picked me up at the airport and says, well, I guess you're the champion of the universe now. (laughs) Old. um is a
1: t-shirt for you no.
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let me write that down. so I, I was all over the <laughs> yeah. I was all over the country and, and I was being in tournaments that were rated by the magazines and by the American karate Association so in 1980 I was rated number nine in men's black belt forms in the United States by karate Illustrated for what I had done through 79 and, and early 80. And I was rated as the number one forms guy in the American Karate Association rankings for several years running. One year I slipped a second and then moved up, but I was rated in forms, weapons, and fighting. So what did you do uh, for weapons? I work on the staff set. I had did a, done a broadsword form that I learned once, and I did the uh, double knife set that I had created that I did with Parker Knives. Uh, never, I, I never competed with them uh, very much, and so the staff set was my main thing. And, and it's the
1: Sorry, is the staff set the you staff set. what we do now? Is that the one? The one that Chuck Sullivan created? Yeah. or yeah, well, the one that's passed yeah. off that I suppose, well, maybe I've got to get you to show me next time yeah. see it, just to make sure. Yeah.
2: Okay. <laughs> it's not a Chinese machine. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what... that <is> <laughs> The one we do, I don't know if it's the one we do unless I see it. Anna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it is.
1: It's the one that you see on uh, the Panther videos that Maroma Topicoboy does it. Pretty, it's similar to Chuck. Probably. I think that's... Yeah. Rubble, yeah. Um, and it's also... I think it was in the Big Red Book, too, or one that was written down on IKKA
2: sheets. Mm, maybe. You know, I was fortunate. I've run a cross with Chuck Sullivan many, many times. And I was at one of Bob White's events years ago, and I saw Chuck Sullivan there, and he's the senior guy. And I walked over to him, and he was always very friendly and forthcoming with me. And what I thought was really cool about it is I got a chance to talk to him, and his guys who were with him all backed away and gave us space so we could just talk. And a lot of times people just, you know, they want to hear what's going on, and they, they, crowd up on you, but they left us be and I was able to ask him some questions about the staff set that, you know, people there's all sorts of stories about where it came from. It's like, well, here's the guy. <laughs> it was it was very informative. And, and then the podcasts that uh or not podcasts, but the video series we did with Paul Casey. I've been on there with Chuck Sullivan several times as well. Great guy.
1: What were the questions you asked him about staff set? Can you can you tell us it?
2: Well, yeah, you know, I just said, hey, uh, you know, I've heard that you made this in your backyard. Is that true? He said, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing a video that was shot on uh, Super 8, on, you know, 8mm film, black and white, of the staff set, the entire staff set. And it's much longer and very much like a lot of Chinese forms. There's a lot of repetition. So what he had done is learned that, and he told me, he says, there was a lot of repetition, so I took a lot of the repetitive stuff out and I put it together like this. He says, so I had a condensed version. I was very, he says, I had trepidation about asking Mr. Parker about it and then showing him what I did. He says, but I showed it to him, he said, I didn't know how he was going to react. And he told me that, that Mr. Parker said, yeah, that's good, let's go with that. (laughs) <laughs> and that's apparently how, how our staff set was born. Nice.
1: Good story. While we're on the topic of Mr. Parker, can you tell us a few stories? I know you've got your book, Lessons of Dead Parker. I don't know how many times I've read it. One of my favorite books. Is there any stories that stand out for you you could share with Oh, boy.
2: Man, there's just so many stories, and I tried to capture them in my books because I wanted people to know what he was like as a, as a man, as a person, and not just what he was teaching. And I was so fortunate to not only get to know him, but I mean, you know, I would have dinner at his house with his family. And I was at a wedding of a couple, two of his kids had a, they had a double wedding. And then after he passed, I knew Leilani, of course, but I was down in Miami and I was doing a seminar for Manny Reyes down there. And Leilani had been flown in, and so I was her driver. So we got to talk about a lot of things, but there was a one story that he always used to tell it about how things slow down under stress, which the term now is time dilation. Uh, you get under stress, and your, your mind starts to process information differently, and it looks like things go in slow motion. And he told a story about an altercation that he had on a highway with two or three, maybe even four individuals in a car, and they wind up pulling over to the side of the road. So he gets out of the car, and, he, and Leilani's in the passenger seat, and she's pregnant with their first child. So he gets out of the car. He's Ed Parker-like to fight. So he wasn't backing down from this, and, and at least two of the guys come out, and they approach him, and he describes how this guy threw a punch, and he says, everything slows down, and he says, well, if I hit him like this, he'll... His body will react this way. If I hit him like that, I hit him in the nose. His nose will break. He's wearing a white T-shirt. The blood will come out. He'll, his body will rotate toward his friend, who will see the blood, who cause hesitation. And he he did all this in the first move. So he hits this guy, and apparently it was something like slashing mace. Uh, from I'm just because the way he moved his hands when he was telling the story, and he says the guy was smoking a cigarette, so I'm going to hit him. The cigarette went up in the air and it rotated in slow motion. He says, it worked as planned. This guy, this other guy, turned around, went ran back to his car. The guy that he hit went down, like, boom. Just like a board. And he started to move toward the the vehicle because the guys inside locked all the doors. <laughs> and then he said, then I got scared. He says, because I thought I killed him. So I, I stood there, he says, and he started to twitch. He's said, oh, good. <laughs> He's alive. Then he got in his car and took off. Well, then, you know, you hear this story. I heard it from him several times when he teach seminars because he talked about how he thought that there was a way that you could train yourself to turn that ability to slow down time on at will. And he used to say, well, read this book and And I don't think there was anything concrete that came out of that. What was the book? It was called Super Learning. I I think it was written by two women. Maybe they were psychologists or or something. I I don't remember the names. I've looked it up. I just don't remember. But Leilani was in the car with them, and when I was bribing her in Miami, she told me the story from her side, which confirmed what he told us. And like the notable thing about it was she goes ed he was an animal <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny because it, she called him ed she also more commonly referred to him as my husband and you know of course we knew who she was talking about she always called him my husband that was one of the significant stories because he used to you know he would talk about how uh, he had he, he knew a lot of actors in Hollywood, and there was an actor that was starring in a TV series called The Rat Patrol, which was set in North Africa, World War II, that yeah. they had some sort of an accident because they, they ran these Jeeps over these sand dunes uh, there, and then something happened. The actor was thrown out of the Jeep, and the Jeep was rolling in the air, and he said he remembered seeing it in slow motions, like it was going to fall on him and crush him but since he had the time dilation effect, he knew which way to roll, and he got out of the way, and it saved his life. So Mr. Parker put a lot of value uh, on that, but like I said, I don't think there was anything that came up where said, well, if you train like this, you can do that. And I'm told that there are baseball players who say they can do that at will. I have not confirmed that. I
1: think at some stage, you once one they have a, a moment of time dilation. But when you talk about having it in an altercation, I can honestly say I've had it happen quite a few times because I used to work, mm. at a, work a door, but more so I had it at a family function <laughs> <clears throat> Um, where I had a drunk, a drunk family member, female, decided she'd had enough and wanted to see what the karate man was all about. Oh, no, really? Yeah. So she ended up grabbing my brand new leather jacket, which I was quite annoyed about. Yeah, that time dilation kicked in and within a split second, I'd run through 154 self-defence techniques to to pick the one that's going to do the least damage and looking at the family members around, watching to see where I'm going to take her and what situation she's going to be in so that the family members still talk to me. And yeah. the, the technique I picked was trip and arrow. Yeah. And, um, so when out of the 154 we got, trip and arrow is probably the least, depends on how you do it, <laughs> the more yeah. compliant technique to, and, and that was what I did, but yeah, in t- terms of time dialogue, exactly. That was exactly that. And that, that wasn't the only family altercation, but, um, you know, when, when there's alcohol involved, I suppose, you you get to do a bit of oh, yeah. you
2: know, family training. I had time dilation occur when I was in pilot training. I had soloed, so after you solo the airplane, your instructor signs you off and you go out and you practice. Well, there's a thing with a, it's called tricycle gear airplanes. You got a nose wheel and then wheels under the wings versus a tail wheel. But I've flying a tricycle gear Piper Cherokee aircraft, and if you, when you're landing, if you don't pull the nose up in the flare just right, you can hit your nose wheel. And if you hit your nose wheel first, then the airplane starts to do this. And it's called porpoising. And develops these oscillations, and usually they get worse. And so then you break the nose gear, you damage the prop, you totally engine, and, and all that stuff. Well, I remember reading uh, in the Flight Training Handbook about how to correct that. And I hit the nose wheel and the airplane started to porpoise. And I remember seeing everything go into slow motion and the page of the book came up in front of me and told me what to do. Yeah. It was weird. So I flew out of it, came around, landed, taxied in, and my instructor said, I thought I was going to be writing an accident report. He says, I don't know what, He says, but you did everything right. So yeah, it was it was a pretty strange experience. Yeah, I, time dilation is a real thing. I can definitely vouch for it. Anyway, interesting. And there's a there's a book that goes into that in a lot of detail. It might be extreme fear. Put some links in the show notes. Let's talk about
1: the term dungeon dojo. <laughs> <laughs> so I read re- read your story. I opened up the journey and had a quick quick brief look at it to do my homework before our interview, Michael. Sanders, your instructor, he used to used to call his his studio the Dungeon Dojo. Is that right?
2: Dungeon Dojo is a term that was used to describe non well even some commercial schools, but it was just it was hardcore training. And I'm sure you've heard the stories about like the Kachikimo guys in Hawaii, where you come for your first class, they break your arm, and then if you come back after it heals, they figure you're sincere. Yeah, I was so that. dungeon was. Oh, you haven't heard that?
1: Nah, thanks for telling me. <laughs> I won't be going for lessons at
2: Ken and Kip. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the environment that Ed Parker came up in. So dungeon dojos were usually the ones where you're... And this isn't the era where there was little or no safety gear. When I came up, there was no such thing as the foam rubber gear. And basically, you were a cup and maybe a mouthpiece. After you bash your shins together with another guy, several times you decide maybe shin pads are a good thing and maybe the football-style little foam pads. So the early 70s was the beginning of protection, protective gear in the studios. But dungeon dojos were just known for just hardcore training, you know, rub some dirt on it and, and shake it off sort of thing. I remember working with Sanders, that he would have you fight the line. So if there were 10 guys in class, you'd fought all 10 of them, one after another. And they were all told that if you go light on this guy, you're going to fight everybody next. So there's a lot of motivation. And one of the guys was working his way through a line and he's he's just flat out, worn out. And so when Sanders has him bow to you know, start the match, he kind of gives a sloppy bow and Sanders just punches him in the chest, just bam says, "I want a goddamn ray, about." And so that straightened him up. That got his attention. And he was known for doing things like if he didn't like the way you were doing your push-ups, he'd stomp on the back of your head. That's indicative of a dungeon dojo.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> and
2: can't really do that in the commercial schools. So talking about that sort of thing with Mister Parker. He said, you know, you've got a handful of guys in your school that you can train like that. He says, those are your guys that eat rusty nails and you take them under your wing. He says, the rest of them, they're just out there. to Just do it. You know, have a little fun, learn some self-defense. He said, but you got your animals that you're going to take off and you do dungeon dojo type stuff with them. I've, I've read
1: that story before that, I think you've put that in your book I think about so. the rusty nails there. Yeah, Cause I do, I do refer to one of yeah. two of my people as the, my rusty nails people. I think yeah. when Graham asked me, well, wow, I said, well, he's my rusty nails guy. <laughs> Have you read Lee's I book? Think... He's my rusty nails guy. So yeah. Nice there lightning for our listeners as well. Also, I just read your school was awarded
2: Very number annoying. one national top school. I know we. Aren't number one in the nation, but you know I got uh, awards a couple of years in Florida for uh, the best karate school in town. But I also had uh, the black belt school of the month award, or not award but article. So that might be what you're thinking of. Karate Illustrated an article way back then, also where they said they talked to the top eleven premier instructors in the country, and I was included in that, which was. There was a surprise, it was nice to see. Not something that I've actually haven't even thought about it much. <laughs> I should probably promote myself more often, I don't know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you you were one of the first Kempo Styles to be national top 10. Um, that was also listed in Karate Illustrated.
2: I was. I was the first Parker Kempo guy, actually Kempo guy, to make the national top 10. And K.I. wrote something not long after that, mentioning Brian Fung, who was an excellent kempo practitioner. Um, basically, I think he was under the uh, Castro lineage. The magazine said, well, he was the first guy to make the national standings. And I wrote to K.I. and they published a letter where I said, that's incorrect. I was rated a year or so before Brian, not to take anything away from him, but You know, I was proud that I was the first one to make the national top 10 to represent our system. I I was really surprised when I opened up the 1980 yearbook for Karate Illustrated and see myself listed in there with some of these great competitors. But I worked pretty hard, and I spent a lot of money eh, flying around the country. It's not
1: cheap going to tournaments, that's for sure.
2: No. I noticed
1: here in 1993 you were inducted into the Martial Arts Hall of Fame.
2: Uh, One of them,
1: yeah. It was 1994, it was School of the Year um, by Black Belt Magazine, which we talked about before, and then I've noticed here you are a representative for A.K.A., I.K.K.A., W.K.K.A., and A.K.K.S. Now, A.K.K.S. I know, because I was part of that. I know I.K.K.A. from historical purposes, but A.K.A., was that their original version of the ikka and then it went international
2: no no it was uh the american karate association
1: okay it's
2: an all-style group there were two big ones in the united states the one was the uska and one was the aka and then the ikk was mr parker's
1: organization
2: yes he was the uh representative for his region there in the midwest which was seven states
1: and then the WKK, is that the one Joe Polanzo started? Is that right? Yes. And that was the World Tempo Karate Association?
2: Yes.
0: As our captivating conversations with Master Lee Wedlake come to a close in part one of our exclusive interview... We are left in awe of his incredible journey throughout the world of martial arts and beyond. His dedication, discipline and unwavering passion have paved a way for numerous achievements, making him a true inspiration for martial arts enthusiasts and learners everywhere. In part two of our interview, we will delve deeper into Master Wedlake's teaching approach, the invaluable life lessons he imparts and his perspective on a continuous self-improvement. There's so much more to discover from this remarkable individual who has left an indelible mark on the martial arts community. We extend our heartfelt gratitude to Master Lee Wood Lake for sharing his time and expertise with us today. And to you, our esteemed listeners, we thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey. Don't miss out on part two of our exclusive interview where we delve further into the mind of a true martial arts sensei. Stay tuned to the Martial Sensei podcast We will continue to bring you enriching conversations with extraordinary individuals from diverse backgrounds. Until next time, keep your minds open and embrace the path of continuous learning and self-discovery. Thank you for being a part of the journey. And thank you for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. Until next time, stay curious and stay inspired and keep cultivating the art of self-discovery. And for those of you wishing to reach out to Master Lee Wedlake, who's available for seminars, and for online learning. He's available at KempoTV.com. Also available on email at lwedlake1 at gmail.com also available on Facebook on www.facebook.com forward slash Lee Kenpo. He also has his website at KempoTV.com for online training and also has vimeo.com training platform, vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash Kempo 401 and vimeo.com on demand forward slash Kempo 101 in two tiers available there. Or you can click on the links available in our show notes. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast and thank you again to Master Lee Wedlake for sharing his story and his time with us. I'm your host Peter Taz and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei Podcast from Down Under. We want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei Podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at MindSensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the MindSensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.